I get it. Because your kiss, your kiss, apocalypse, because your kiss. That's it, right? I get it now. Oh, I'm going to say it all day long. Hey, Michelle. Geordie, hello. How's it going? Uh, good, I think. How about you? What do you mean you think? That sounds a little... Well, I don't know. I haven't... On the edge. haven't really thought about oh, it. Oh, okay. You know, I was, trying to, I was trying to think of a different way to respond to that. Because, you know, when somebody says, how are you? You just go, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> but deep down, there could be something that's not fine or perhaps something is up. I don't know. But do you think that... I don't do know. Do you think that with greetings, people really share their deepest, darkest thoughts? Or do you think it is just this glib, no. glib thing where, how are you going? Great. How are you? Good. Right. Moving Why along. Why do people bother asking then? Just hello. Hello. Right. So matter at hand. Pleasantries, I guess. Well, I mean, the yeah. world needs more pleasantries. The world is not a pleasant True. place half the time. So. No, you're right. You know, pleasantries are good. Shall we try and make it a bit more pleasant, Michelle, for everybody listening? <laughs> Hello, I'm Geordie. And I'm Michelle, and you are listening to Eavesdropping, the podcast. And we congratulate you, and we want to know, how are you? Really, <laughs> how are you? We do have an email address that you can respond to that question with. It's hello at eavesdropping.com. No, hello, yes, is it? At oh, eavesdroppingpodcast.com. <laughs> eavesdroppingpodcast.com yeah so that's where you send all your messages of support we prefer the complaint messages to just be on youtube please because i never look at that we've had a few youtube comments lately have we and they haven't been trolls they've actually people been saying well just weird stuff you know people people are so random well like what michelle let me have a deep dive into that. One moment, please, caller. There was actually a comment on the murder of Harry and Nicola Fuller. That was your story. Oh, that was a long time ago. That was the uh, Crime Watch UK. It was a long, old case, wasn't it? It was really interesting. Long, too. old, cold case. Long, old, cold case. And it was local to where my husband grew up. So I know the area. Kind of hometowny. Yeah, maybe it was part of the hometown murder series. Anyway, we have a listener called Ian Payne. What does he say? They got married a year before us. This year, we celebrate 30 years and they would have celebrated 31. May they R.I.P. Oh. oh, you better respond to that chap and say thank you for your comment. Did you listen to the podcast? <laughs> no. Why the fuck not? Get on there, mate. We need the listenership. Come on. Well, That's going to push us to the top of the British Podcasting Awards Listener's choice next year. Straight to the top. We didn't rank this year. Sorry. Oh, well, you know, you can't win it all. We've won the hearts and minds of our listeners. Well, yes. Maybe. Top 5%. Yes. We just need a few more listeners. So please tell your friends, tell your family, tell everyone, eavesdropping podcast. If you love it, they'll love it too. Exactly. Now, I will say Ian actually came back a few days later and made a second comment on the same video. Okay. It just says, my dad had a phone in his car in the 1970s. Oh, he did listen to the podcast then. He did because we talked about that. Yes. Mm. Harry Fuller had one. Yes. So there you go. It's nice when people interact and make comments. What was his name? Ian Payne. Ian, if you're still with us, and I kind of doubt that you are, but 
If you are, please let us know. You can email us at hello at eavesdroppingpodcast.com and just say hi. We love it. And we try our very best to always get back to people, don't we, Michelle? We do. Sometimes it takes a little moment, but we do always respond. A hot minute. (laughs) Do you remember last week, Michelle, we talked about our mother's silly sayings? Oh, those silly things. They do say the funniest things, those old ladies, don't they? Have you come up with any more? No. We've talked about previously. Oh, hello, Blossom. Hello, Pet. It's all of those. There's a lot more. There's a lot more that you just haven't thought of because your mind has jettisoned them. Or you just <laughs> they just made so little sense at the time that you just thought, what? And yeah. moved on. I know that, dear mum, I do love her so, but I do know that there's a lot of crazy stuff that comes out of her mouth that I've just gone, what on earth does that mean? Do you even know what that means? And I think that she's probably got it from her mum. So it's almost like another language from times gone by. Have you thought of some new ones? No. (laughs) What I want to do is ask her if she wouldn't mind us recording some conversations or something. I don't know. I actually called her this morning, but she was too busy drinking it up at happy hour at Budgie Smuggler's Rest. I know. She is the social secretary at Budgie Smuggler's Rest over there in uh, regional New South Wales (laughs) on the southeast coast of New South Wales. They're having the time of their life. She's also the president of the Arts Society. There's always something going on at Budgie Smuggler's. Trust me. She has stepped into her power. She really has. Never a dull moment. Amazing. Well, I did speak to Jen recently. Yeah. And she was quite disturbed by the double decapitation. Well, who wouldn't be, Michelle? It was disturbing. (laughs) It was disturbing. (laughs) She's got a pulse, hasn't she? (laughs) It's just one of those things that she'd forgotten about. Okay. I also did speak to eavesdropper Steph. Yeah. Who got in touch. She has a hometown murder for us. I don't even know if there's anything on it. But again, people, we love it when you write in. Are they more Canberra murders? Because it just seems that we've got an awful lot of people listening from Canberra because we are very heavy, because you're from Canberra, very heavy on the Canberra hometowns. It seems like there's a lot of murdering going on in that town. I know. And it just gets covered up because it's a posh, well-to-do kind of city in a Mm. way. It's the seat of government. But maybe it makes more of an impact because... In the scheme of things, population-wise, maybe there aren't that many. So when there is one, it really sticks in your mind. I'm not sure. Is it the country town capital? Is that what they call it? What do they call it? The bush capital. The bush. That's it. Bush capital. The bush. What accent was that? That was hilarious. Bush. It's the bush capital. We're known for having more trees than people. Which is always oh, nice. I wonder if it's still that way round. Well, I bloody hope, I hope so. so. hope they haven't yeah. cut down those gum trees. Speaking of Australia, again, our wonderful white witch, Safka, she's hot on the emails. She oh, is. Oh, we love her. We love you, Safka. She's great. I know. She's always writing in. She's spreading the word. Because we've Thank also you. had another listener, Kiss Apocalypse, write in with some suggestions. So thank That's you very amazing. much. Fabulous. Yeah, on the birth certificate, kiss apocalypse. Not really. Your your face looks so confused. You look so confused. I think it's a pseudonym. Okay. Because it's about, you know, kiss lips, kiss apocalypse. No, I didn't get it actually. I don't get kiss apocalypse. It's one of those things that's gonna be hard for me to say. <laughs> what's the what's the trick? What's the uh well, it's, pun? Well instead of just 
kissing lips, your kiss apocalypse. Oh, it had to be explained to me. Oh, dear. How embarrassing. Right, got it. I get it. Because your kiss, your kiss, apocalypse, because your kiss. That's it, right? That's it. it now. That's oh, I'm going to say it all day lips. long. <laughs> well done. Love it. Only took, Thanks. took some time. But when the penny <laughs> drops, the penny drops. Oh, it drops hard. But you know what? We love it when people write in and he's had some wonderful yeah. suggestions for hometown murders. We'll get to those. But my mini dive today, like I said, comes from Safka, who suggested we take a look at Rosaline Norton, also known as the Witch of King's Cross. And for the record... We are talking. Have you? Yes. How? Because I do a lot of investigation for this podcast and a lot of investigation about Alistair Crowley because he was our first episode, wasn't he? Yes, he was a beast of Hastings. The great beast. So I'd actually listened to a few podcasts to get information about Rosaline. And there was this one. It's by a guy who's a bit witchy, a bit occulty. He was slamming Alistair Crowley. Oh. Sometimes they do. Mm, he thinks he's a bit of a dud. In what way? Well, he's had too much recognition and too much yeah. notoriety for basically yeah. just being someone who maybe cast a few dodgy spells and just had orgies, I think was what yeah. he was getting at. And I think I kind of understand where he's coming from with mm. that, from what I know. But we don't know much about, you know, all we know about Alistair Crowley is second, third, fourth hand reports. There are some people who thought he was beastly and uh, a monster. Others thought he was the best thing ever. Others may have rightly just thought, and me, I'm one of them, and I could still be wrong. He was just a bit of a guy that had a lot of money and a lot of spare time and really loved rituals and sex and drugs. And he was also very charismatic. So he was able to get people to follow him. A little bit culty, actually, you might say. A little bit little bit but not really because he didn't force people I mean his big thing is your will thou wilt can't remember (laughs) do as thou wilt yes that is the rule of the law no it was things like and it will do no harm I think I can't remember maybe we'll find out later well I don't really go into Alistair Crowley today but I will say with I do oh great with all of these sort of figures from history whether it's recent history or ancient history As you said, we are taking this third hand. Also, we have to remember that people are in control of their own narratives. So he could have created the narrative about himself. And in fact, in many ways, Rosaline Norton did that too. And I'll dive into her a bit. But like I said, she was known as the Witch of King's Cross. And we're talking King's Cross in Sydney, Australia, not King's Cross in London. She's an Aussie lady. Well, you say that. But she was actually born in New Zealand. Oh, I didn't know what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Say it again, Michelle. She's she's born in New Zealand. A.K.A. Aotearoa, New Zealand. (laughs) Aotearoa. That's where she's from. I'm going to jump right in because she had a wild life. I'll start it right back at the beginning when Rosalie Norton, who as a child actually renamed herself and wanted to be called Thorn. Fawn, F-A-W-N. No, T-H-O-R-N. Sorry, that's oh, my braces. Okay. <laughs> I'm mucking that up. Fawn is quite cute, though, the first thing that I said. I think it's... Fawn, not sure. It's a little bit bold and beautiful. 
Yes. Thorn. There is a thorn. There is a thorn. There was Brooke. A ridge. Ridge. They had all the boulder names. Speaking of Budgie Smuggler's Rest, as we were earlier, where my parents live, yeah. they spend a lot of time watching that. In fact, their day is kind of working around the the repeat from yesterday's. <laughs> if they miss the four o'clock showing, they have to catch the 11 o'clock the next day showing of Bold and the Beautiful. They love it. Brooke's still in it. I told you, didn't I? Unrecognisable. So much work. So much work. At university, it was my daily go-to. I was obsessed. <laughs> I wasn't doing my classes. I wasn't going into lectures. I was at you home. stay home and watch Bold and the Beautiful. But I was not the only one. We were all no. obsessed. And in fact, our very dear friend Sarah, for one of her big birthdays, we had a Bold and the Beautiful revival party. <laughs> what? what did you do? Watch it. No, we were all online and we all dressed up as Bold and the Beautiful. Was I there? You did too. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) My God. (laughs) Did you not remember that? Oh, I must have missed my mushroom coffee this morning. Something's going wrong with my brain. Now that we're over 40, it's just what happens, Geordie. (laughs) But anyway. What was I wearing? I don't know, but I had teased hair and... (laughs) Some 80s eyeshadow on, 90s actually, 90s It's all about eyeshadow. the heavy makeup, isn't it? Mm. Maybe you were in a bathrobe. No, surely not. Anyway, Sarah was dressed as Stephanie Spectra. <laughs> Tell me about Rosaline. Rosaline? So, Rosaline, R-O-S-A-L-E-E-N. Rosaline. Rosaline. She called herself Thorn, but actually she was known as Rowie. As she got older, Rowie, which right. for me, that slang is, a Rowie is rehypnal. It's what you slip yeah. in a drink when you right. want to do bad things to people unconscious. Oh yeah, it's not nice. The folklore around her was that she was born during a thunderstorm on October 2 in 1917. Of course. In Dunedin, New Zealand. Oh, that's in New Zealand. Okay. New Zealand. Yes. <laughs> I always thought it was Dunny Din. What? Now, obviously, that's not how you pronounce I don't know much about New Zealand. Like she's from Cork. Like she's from Cork in Ireland. But Dunedin. Dunedin. It's Dunedin, is it? Dunedin. Dunedin. Right. Dunedin. I mean, you could look at it and think it was pronounced Dunedin or Dunedin. Dunedin. Okay. And I know that because I went out with a New Zealander. Well done. So, like I said, in the reports I had read, she said she had been born a witch mm. because when she was born... She supposedly had pointed ears, blue markings on her left knee, and this is kind of gross, an elongated, sinewy strand of flesh that went from her armpit to her waist. Jesus Christ. Pop that one back in. Well, that's it, because as a parent, don't you think you'd be quite mortified if you just slipped that out like a goat and... uh, (laughs) And you just see this weird piece of flesh hanging off your baby. Poor little baby, though. I mean, let's not laugh at the baby. I know, but she thinks that that makes her witchy. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, I would agree. I know, but you would just think, what the fuck is wrong with my baby? That too. But her parents were actually British. They were Anglican. They were middle class. And they'd moved to New Zealand a few years before Rosaline was born. And she was the youngest of three sisters who were both actually more than 10 years older than her. So I imagine she probably felt a little bit like an only child growing up. Yeah. And certainly from the reports that I'd read, 
she did seem to be a bit of an eccentric oddball and a bit of a loner right from an early age. In fact, I read that as a child, Rosaline never wanted to be conventional and she didn't like any children, didn't really have any friends. She didn't get on well with authority figures. Didn't like them. No, she just disliked her peers. She also didn't like her mum, Bina. Her dad, Albert, was a merchant seaman and he was away from home a lot. And when she was eight years old in June 1925, her family moved from Dunedin to Sydney, where they actually lived over the bridge, over the Harbour Bridge on the Upper North Shore in Linfield. The family had money. Now, as a child, she apparently had visions. And I managed to find a reference to an article from the Australasian Post from January 1957, where Rosaline describes visions she had as a five-year-old that included a lady in a grey dress and a dragon, as well as trance states that she would go into, which when she was a kid, she called those trance states big things and little things, which she says captured the experience of her body growing in size as she floated as if she was in a dream. Do you know what it sounds like to me? No. Alice in Wonderland. Very good point, actually. Yeah, it does sound like that. Maybe she was really influenced by that. I wish she was alive. I'd ask her, but she's dead. Sorry about that. All right, P. So from a young age, I think she was aware that she could sort of see and feel things that maybe other kids couldn't. Maybe that's why she didn't really like other kids. She also decided that she did not want to sleep in the house with her family. So she lived in a tent in the garden of the family home. What age home. is she again? Eight. Wow. Her family let her live outside in a, tent. in a tent for three years. Well, I'd be very worried about that because think of all the things in New Zealand that could come and eat your face off in the night. Well, she's in Sydney now. She's in Linfield oh. over the bridge. Even Sydney. Well, Sydney's even worse. It They've is. got even more things that will eat your face off. I know. Spiders. Snakes. Rats. Wombats. What? <laughs> what? Possum. Might. A possum might come and attack you. Might, well, yes. Well, thing is, she had a pet spider called Horatius that lived at the entrance of the tent. And she loved animals and she collected a bit of a menagerie of pets, including cats and lizards and tortoises and toads, some dogs and a goat. I think that actually she was correct in thinking she was born a witch. Maybe. She's definitely an odd bod, isn't she? She's not. She is an odd bod. She's not your your average kid. No, I mean, what are we talking here? She she was born in 1917, so you know what? All the other girls were into their probably their little porcelain dolls. Hoops with a stick. What the fuck is a hoop with a stick? Lacrosse. <laughs> Did they used to just like throw a hoop down the street and like turn it with a stick, like move it with a stick? I don't know. She went to Chatswood Girls Grammar. It's a fancy private girls' school. Yeah. And it did not go well for her there, mainly because she really started to develop her art and drawings. And they were Mm. not the kinds of drawings that the other girls were doing. I bet. No. She was drawing demons and vampires and ghouls and ghosts. And in fact, her art was so macabre that she was eventually expelled from Chatswood Girls Grammar. Oh, God. What? Expelled from being creative. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. That's a new one. Well, her parents were told that Rosaline, and she was 14 when she got expelled, was 
not only disruptive, but she was a corrupting influence on the other girls. Oh, right. Mm. Okay. So actually, her parents enrolled her at East Sydney Tech, where she studied art and began writing horror short stories. I love this girl. Yeah. And a few of them were actually printed in a bohemian fringe newspaper called Smith's Weekly. And when she was 15, she got a job there as a cadet journalist and illustrator. But her stuff was too out there, even for that newspaper. And she was eventually fired. I will say, I've I've seen her art. It's not for me, mainly because I feel like it just looks really teenaged. And it's a little bit kind of grotesque. Lots of really long-faced demons with these huge snake penises. Oh, that's why they didn't want to see a penis in those days. That's why it's It wasn't all... a tiny little willy. It was these massive snake dongs. And she's doing this when she's like... 14, 15. 15. Yeah. 14. Where's she seeing the willies? Well... I didn't even think to ask that question. I don't know. But look, if you're interested, I'll put some links to her art. And, you know, if it's Mm. for you, it's for you. Her mum died when she was, I don't know, in her late teens. And after the death Mm. of her mother, she moved out of home. And she just got by doing odd jobs. She worked in kitchens. She was a waitress. She delivered mail for a bit. A little bit like your postie, Dan. He hasn't delivered mail for a bit. He's been delivering it for 25 years, Michelle. He's a professional he, postie. He made a, he's got a career. It's a career. It's because he loves people. Yes. Rosaline liked some people. Hates people. But she okay. also did a, had a little stint as a toy designer and she did a bit of nude oh. modelling. Designing toy dragons with enormous penises. <laughs> Straight for your three-year-old. <laughs> she also did... This nude modelling, life modelling. That's the sort of thing I imagine she should be doing, not posting letters and designing toys. She posed for Norman Lindsay. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Super famous Australian artist whose work actually has quite a lot of pagan eroticism in it. Yes. It's funny because I always thought he was the guy who did Blinky Bill, but that's not him, is it? I don't think so. No. I don't know who did Blinky Bill. From what I've read and what I've seen, actually, their art is sort of aligned in some way. And when Norman Lindsay was asked about her... I love his art. Do you? Well, that kind of fairy tale, gothic... Well, then you're going to love her art because it has a little bit of that about it. He described her as a talented but untamed young woman who refuses to restrain herself. Well, I don't know if that's meant as a compliment or not, but I hope so. Um, Because like I said, she was a bit of an eccentric and she did not look like other girls. And she was quite striking in her own way. She had this really severe fringe. She had Mm. these really sort of drawn on arched eyebrows. And it looks like she's kind of shaved the sides and then drew these high sort of Cruella de Vil eyebrows. Wow. And this next thing, I don't want this to sound like I'm dental shaming. Judging, right. But her teeth were crazy. Okay. And in fact, I saw a video of her talking and I couldn't concentrate on what she was saying because her accent was really quite strong. You couldn't really understand what she's saying, even... Like her New Zealand accent, even after all those years in Australia, was really intense. And her teeth were just bizarre. Wild. There were so many gaps. I don't know if she hadn't looked after them and a lot had fallen out. And there's this great pic I found of her. She's sitting in the gutter in King's Cross, smoking a cigarette, Mm. wearing a men's shirt, these beautiful flared trousers and a white tie and these lovely sandals. She looks great actually. That sounds like a great outfit. It's a great outfit, but no one else in the 1930s was looking like that as a woman. So she, she really had her own style, 
walked her own path. And in 1935, mm. when she was 17, she met and married a guy called Beresford Lionel Conroy, and they had a bit of a nomadic life, hitchhiking across Australia. But when the pair got back to Sydney, her husband enlisted as a commando in the army and was shipped off to serve in Papua New Guinea during Second World War. Okay. And this left her alone with no money. So she ended up living in a horse's stable. And I think she loved it, actually. I don't think it was a hardship for her. And when the husband got back, they separated. And that's when she ended up living in King's Cross. Now, for anyone who doesn't know about King's Cross, in those days was super seedy. It's expensive and gentrified now. But it was a red light district. There were loads of drugs and porn and shady characters. It was cheap to live there. Artists and bohemians all were living there because it, it was cheap. And it was perfect for Rosaline. I'm sure she'd probably felt like she'd found her tribe, which was, you know, a witchy tribe because from the age of 23, she began getting into magic. And at first she practiced trance magic where she would meditate while she's on drugs, sometimes not, just with the aim to raise her consciousness and transcend her physical body to experience a higher level. I also read that she was very good at astral traveling. So maybe that was the start of that kind of thing for her. And I also read that she was into sex magic. Well, that's what Crowley loved. Exactly. It was developed by Crowley, actually, I think. Yeah. Loves that sex magic. And when you look at Rosaline's art, it was full of naked women, naked men, naked demons, lots of snake penises. And she was big into the sex rituals. And she was bisexuals. She said that she preferred... Bisexuals? She was bisexual. She was big into sex rituals. She was bi. She preferred having sex with gay men because she could dominate, which I think technically means that men weren't gay, but bi. She also said she loved women going down on her. Nice. So like uh, Alistair (laughs) Crowley, I think it was fun times. You like it too then, Michelle. (laughs) No comment. You just said it's nice. No comment. (laughs) But I think it was, you know, fun times at the coven with all of these like sexy rituals. But, you know, there also was a witchy element of going to a higher level, higher consciousness, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And look, if you think about a woman spearheading that kind of sexual openness back in 1930s and 40s Australia, you realize what she was doing was really bold and really risque for those times. And all the while she was drawing and painting these pagan demons and gods and goddesses. I think all of her art, no matter whether it's a demon, a woman or a ghost, it all looks like her. They all look like her face. Those big eyebrows, the long face, they're all kind of self-portraity. You know, she was into her ancient deities uh, like Hecate, who's the Greek goddess. Hecate. Hecate, sorry. Hecate, who's the Greek goddess that presides over witches. Lilith, who's the... Devil's wife. Female demon, yep. Uh, Egyptian goddess Isis. They're the dark ones, aren't they? They're all quite dark, those demons and witches. Yeah, but she loved Pan. And he was the centre, the Greek god Pan, who's the centre of her worship. Naughty. Naughty Pan. Naughty Pan. But he is the god of nature. And she was really into Mm. like her animals and all of that kind of stuff. He's god of sex. He's half man, half goat. And people get him mixed up with the devil which did not do her any favours because people saw her as a Satanist rather than, as she called herself, a high priestess at the altar of Pan. Right. And all her sex rituals that she would either do alone or with members of her magical circle were all in his honour. But 
of course, when you see a half man, half goat, people just labelled all her rituals as satanic orgies. Sure. Then around 1949, she met a younger man called Gavin Greenlees. He was a poet and a self-confessed surrealist. In 1949, they hitchhiked to Melbourne to try and find a space where she could exhibit her art. And the art that she did, a lot of it was through self-hypnosis and automatic drawing, which I found really, really interesting. She finally got a space at the University of Melbourne's Rowden White Library, and she exhibited 46 of her paintings, but it did not go well because two days after the exhibition opened, Police stormed it and removed four paintings that they deemed to be obscene. Penises are too big. Too big. Too big, Rosalie. Get them off the walls. Tiny little cherub penis. You might have got away with it. Uh, very hard to live up to expectation there. I know. She was charged under the Offences Act of 1928. Yeah, or exhibiting right. obscene images. The whole thing went to court. Her lawyer managed to argue that actually her images were you know, not as bad as these ones that were in a recent book called The History of Sexual Magic that the Australian government censors had actually given the green light to. So she won the case. She got four pounds, four pence in compensation. Compensation. Yeah, big fucking deal. But it meant that she now had eyes on her. And a similar backlash happened after a book called The Art of Rosalie Norton was published in 1952, which Mm -hmm. was a compilation of her illustrations with poems by her boyfriend, Gavin Greenlees. The book's publisher, Walter Glover, faced obscenity charges and she had to go back to court, defend her art, and she didn't win this time. The magistrate actually fined the publisher five pounds, ordered that all of the books be destroyed and it was just a bad situation. Mm-hmm. But I think that it didn't sort of destroy her sense of who she was. I don't think much could by the sound of it. No. She was, um, like I said, living in King's Cross at the time with Gavin. She decorated the house with all these murals of altars to Pan. And apparently there was a placard on the door outside her house that said, Welcome to the house of ghosts, goblins, werewolves, vampires, witches, wizards and poltergeists. Sounds like a fun house. So nothing was really dampening her spirits. But of course, all this controversy of her in and out of the courts hit the papers. And that's when the press gave her the moniker, the Witch of King's Cross. You know, she became a bit of a a celebrity. People would come to the cross just to try and... See if they could see the Witch of King's Cross. Yeah. She'd been dubbed the leader of a witch cult, which I don't think her coven or cult was really anything more than like a group of friends who all got together to have a bit of sexy times in masks and do a few rituals. And of course, controversy managed to follow her around because in 1955, a girl called Anna Karina Hoffman, who was struggling with mental illness, apparently one day in King's Cross, shouted and swore at police and they pressed charges against her and it went to trial. That was wild behaviour. Well, back then, yeah, for a woman to do that. And during the trial, she said her life had unravelled after participating in a satanic black mass led by Rosaline Norton. Ooh. Well, the papers lapped this up and branded her a Satanist, even though she tried to explain, I'm a pagan. In fact, Anna did eventually admit to making up the whole story, but the damage was done. And she became, in the eyes of the press, a devil-worshipping witch who sacrificed animals, which 
really upset her because she loved animals. She loves animals, yeah. exactly. But the heat was on and in 1955, police raided her house with accusations of unnatural sex acts. And the evidence that was presented was a photo of Gavin dressed in like mm. this ritual kind of, you know, robes and right. whatever, flagellating Rosaline's bare ass. And wow, where did the photo come from? Well, she'd had a birthday party, which I think sounds more like an S&M swingers night. And the yeah. pic was stolen by two members of her so-called coven who okay. intended to sell them to the Sun newspaper for 200 quid. She got, remember, she got four Four yeah. pounds at the time from her court case. So yeah. they were trying to sell it for a lot of money. A lot, yeah. Then there was a guy called Sir Eugene Goosens, who was a classical music composer who was fascinated by her. She ended up in a throuple with him, Gavin, and he got done for trying to bring in 800 indecent works of art, which were just pictures, like sexy pictures. And it destroyed his career, poor guy. Left. Oh. And he'd been knighted by the Queen a year earlier. Yeah. So he was not happy about being involved with Rosaline. And in fact, things started to go sour for Rosaline too, because in 1957, her boyfriend Gavin was diagnosed with schizophrenia, was institutionalized, oh yeah, in a psych hospital. And in 1964, mm. on a temporary release from hospital, he tried to kill Rosaline with a knife. Ooh. And he, Ooh. And he stayed in that psych ward until 1983. <gasps> he died? That's a long time. No, he got let out. Oh. Yeah, they let him out. And I don't know how he ended up, actually. Mm. But during the 60s, Rosaline became a bit of a recluse. Uh, she was out of the spotlight because she just didn't seem odd anymore. Because in the 60s, the occult was really taking off. And her... Health began to spiral. She got news that she had cancer. Oh. And in 1979, she was admitted basically to palliative care. Oh. And I read this thing, which I'll end with, which was a friend of hers who wrote a memoir called Richard Moyer. He said the last time he saw her, and he said she had two personas, Rowie and Rosaline. You know, Rowie was who she really was. Rosaline was her as the witch. And he went to visit her and he said... When I arrived at the hospital, I was led into the visitor's lounge, which struck me as odd because Rowie couldn't walk. I waited patiently there for some time. Then suddenly, Rosaline Norton appeared, standing on both legs, greeting me with the assistance of two sisters. The huh. sight was mind-blowing. Rosaline Norton, not Rowie, was standing there in full attire, her fiery hair styled just so, her makeup meticulously applied, face powder, the full Rosaline Norton eye makeup, arched eyebrows and red lipstick. It was the Rosaline Norton I'd always known, but even more so. She stood only for a minute and the last words she ever said to me were, darling, I can't stay too long. I just came to say hello. Ugh. And with her head held high, she was escorted out of my sight forever. And she died on December 5, 1979. And there's actually a plaque on the street of Darlinghurst Road in King's Cross yeah. to her. And if you want to know more, there's a documentary called The Witch of King's Cross that I'd came out yeah, in 2021. Netflix. I don't think it's Netflix. It's quite hard to find, but I'll put a link to it. Okay. Wonderful. And that's Rosaline. So thanks, Safka, for pointing me in that direction. Thank you, Safka. Thank you, Michelle. I really enjoyed hearing all about that amazing life. Amazing lives. I love them, don't you? Supernatural. Go 
ghost is in a wall, supernatural. Poltergeist at all, supernatural. We are chatting supernatural. Supernatural. So speaking of amazing lives, I've got a little touching upon of Crowley. And I did mention that earlier because I always like to go back to him. Although I'm not going to talk too much about Alistair Crowley, the great beast as he was known. I'm actually going to focus today on Crowley's associates, mainly his women and children and what happened to them and what their lives were possibly like living with the wickedest man in the world. So if you remember, going right back to our very first episode, which may or may not be still available unless you're a patron for Patreon, season one, episode one, it was all about the great beast himself, Alistair Crowley, who was a mountaineer, a religious leader of of his own religion, Thelema, a drug addict and all round naughty boy. To me, he was the original rock star. And I told back in that episode, I told the story of Crowley's Scottish Boleskine Manor, which was owned at one point by Uber fan Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. And the manor was said to be haunted. And I told a few stories about that after Crowley left a portal open midway through a very long Mm. spell and ritual. He was trying to summon a demon. But then news got to him that there was a big party in Paris and he was invited. So he just dropped everything and went, leaving that portal open, if you believe that kind of thing. As you've mentioned, Michelle, he loved a bit of sex magic. In fact, it was his idea. And before you ask Michelle... No, he's not hot. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen the pictures of him. I think he must have been charismatic because... Very much, yes. Not hot. He's not for me. No. He's not hot. Hot for some, as you'll find out. But say, for instance, if you were to attend, there was something called the Ordo Templii. I can't remember. The Ordo Templii something or other it was kind of like a religion that came from rosicrucians and freemasonry and he was involved in it until he decided to start his own church of thelema and if you were say at a church of thelema mass of the phoenix or something you might be asked michelle to eat a cake of light much like the wafer that represents the body of christ in catholicism which i'm sure is not made of people or a man it's made of flour and sugar etc but this cake of light is made from either male spunk or ladies' period blood, or sometimes a mix of the two. Oh, delicious. Yum. Full of protein. (laughs) Crowley was a lover, as you know, of men and women, and apparently his first mystical experience was while on vacation in Stockholm on New Year's Eve in 1896 when he had a sexual encounter with a man. And he said it was an experience of horror and pain, yet at the same time, it was the key to the purest and holiest spiritual ecstasy that exists. Naughty Swedes. So naughty. Drugs played a big part in his life and his rituals, and his relationship with heroin began when he was prescribed it to help with his asthma. Oh. He was also addicted to cocaine, and he loved that so much that it eventually eroded his nasal passages. But of course, you can read all about that in Crowley's book, Diary. (laughs) Why can't I speak? Diary of a Drug Fiend. Wow. Can you imagine just going to the doctor and it's like, you don't need an inhaler, just... Oh, whack up some 
some heroin. Just whack up some heroin. Here you go. That you'll be absolutely fine. And then you come back and you've got no nose. I know, ridiculous. Your septum's gone. I don't know if I mentioned this in that episode, um, that very first episode of Eavesdropping. But did I tell you about the Abbey of Thelema, which is uh, it's a commune in Sicily, founded in 1920 by Crowley. There was a mysterious death that occurred from one of their disciples, if you'd like to say, a former member, the wife of this young man who died whilst at the Abbey of Thelema in Sicily, Cefalu it was called. She returned to England and painted a really debauched picture of the goings-on back there. And then there was a trial in which Crowley attended and had to defend himself against accusations of devil worshipping and evil practices. And now he moved Mm. to Cefalu in April of 1920 and he moved there with his two lovers his thruple Leah Hersig and Ninette Shumway and they were referred to by Crowley as his first concubine and his second concubine great and their children Leah and Nanette had both met each other on an Atlantic crossing on the same ship. Nanette was a widowed lady who was traveling with her young son, Howard, while Leah was pregnant with Crowley's child and also had her child from a previous relationship, Hansi. Now, Leah was probably the most famous of Crowley's scarlet women. So he was married and had previous children and I think all sorts of things. And then continually have new lovers and new not marriages as such but scarlet women I suppose and she was his most famous one also known as the scarlet bride that was what he called all of his favorite kind of lovers Nanette was to become the couple's governess after they got on so well the two ladies and they all lived together in France where Leah gave birth to her and Crowley's daughter Anna Leah aka Poupe that's what they called her for short I know. At this point, Nanette and Crowley had become lovers and Nanette became quite obsessed with him and wanted to be his number one. This caused problems between the ladies, you can probably imagine. So once they arrived at the Abbey, Nanette was already up the duff with Crowley's kid and poor baby Poupe was really sick. She had been oh, since birth. She'd been poopaying too much. She wasn't well at all. Then Leah fell really ill with dysentery and appeared quite worn down. I think conditions at the Abbey weren't great. Everyone was running around, lots of animals everywhere. Kids are running wild. They're doing all this sex magic rituals for days on end. Not much food to eat and whatnot. Loving it. Then people were getting sick. It's not that sanitary. I mean, you go to Italy and there are still squat toilets and this is like a hundred years ago the squat toilets that they had then if they even had toilets maybe they didn't even have running water maybe there was some kind of dysentery going on there was that fountain you see i think i told you about it previously there was a fountain in the courtyard that crowley said that water's not safe to drink but one of the members Mm. a young man partner of this actress i think she was british he drank it. They both drank it. She got really sick. He died because oh he was a bit God. poorly anyway. But they went mm. back to England and she blamed his death on Crowley. And actually, I think I've told you this story before on air, but that was when he had to attend a court case. Anyway, going back to the Abbey of Thelema, the children that accompanied the members were all allowed to play, just randomly play all day, be naked, have fun, witness the sex magic rituals by the adults, sometimes including bestiality yep. with a goat, they say. Yep. There was a list of rules, though, from Crowley on how the children should be raised. Mostly it's about 
letting them develop their own individuality. But then there's this, and this is a direct quote. Every child should be presented with all possible problems and permitted to register its own reaction. If he wants the brandy bottle instead of the milk bottle, give him the brandy bottle. And he signs off with, every man and every woman is a star. There is none unworthy of love. It is not written. Love is the law. Love under will. Hmm. What do you think of that? Would you hand the brandy bottle to your baby? Mm. Well, there are some good reasons for it. And I will go on to tell you why. <laughs> not some okay, not. Okay, right. So I kind of half agree. I think it needs to be a bit more controlled okay, in okay. this experiment. Crowley was raising Leah's son, Hansi, to be his successor. And little Hansi was known as Beast Number Two. After one of Leah's sisters visited the abbey, she found the boy running wild with not much to eat while his parents were in Palermo. So she whisked him off the island, despite the other members forbidding her, and off to New York, where her other sister, a lady called Marion Dockerell, raised the boy in New York. And this is a letter from Marion that I found. They let him have the brandy bottle and make himself drunk or ill. And after it was over, they carefully explained why it had made him ill and told him that if he liked being drunk and ill, to help himself again. They did not remove the bottle from his reach. But while I have an intense personal dislike for Alistair Crowley and do not believe in any of his crazy teachings, I'll be fair enough to say I believe it's true that Hansi never touched the brandy bottle again. (laughs) Do you know what? I can't see the logic in that. Yeah, but... It's that whole thing of, do you let your kid touch the hot stove Well, exactly to that. teach him a lesson? That's also in there. It was the same with the hot stove. They allowed him <laughs> to burn himself and he never went near it again. But, Marion continues in this letter, one thing he did try and stuck to was cigarettes. He started smoking at five <gasps> as he wanted to keep on. They let him. The aunt goes on to say that when he arrived with them aged seven, he would cry for his ciggies and only when he became violent would they relent and let him have them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Addiction. Addiction. That's bad. That's terrible. So bad. Imagine if he'd liked the brandy and this little five-year-old is smoking a ciggy with up. a brandy. Oh, I my know. God. He was really going through withdrawals when he arrived at Marion's, but eventually they managed to get him to kick the habit. And it was quite a task to raise the boy who, at age seven, when given toys and books to play with, would retort with, to hell with you, stupid women. I want somebody to play chess with me. And when told (gasps) that fags were bad for little boys, he replied, what do I care about little boys? I am handsy. I have what I want. I want cigarettes. Let them hurt little boys. They can't hurt me. I am strong. Nothing can hurt me. That is contrary to my will. I smoked all the time in Sheffaloo before you came. And see, I am strong. I am beast number two. You are only stupid women. What a little fucking asshole. <laughs> Honestly, like, I mean, he is Crowley Jr., isn't he? Pretty much. Beast, you know, awful. Can you imagine what a precocious little fucker he would be? I don't know what happened to him in the end. I couldn't find any more information about him. But let's return to the Abbey, where Crowley would often leave the commune to visit Palermo, seeking out rent boys and to buy supplies, including his drugs. There was a continual flow of new members arriving while this menage a trois drama was playing out between Nanette and Leah and Alistair Crowley. Many of these movers and shakers who would arrive, though, there would be things like actresses, models, aristocrats, academics from all over the world. And some of them would return home and start up their own branches of Crowley's Ordo Templi 
orientis. That was the word I was looking for before. I have it written down. Ordo Templi Orientis, which had evolved from Freemasonry. I mentioned it earlier. But anyway, by September, baby Pupe was taken by her mother Leah to hospital in Palermo, where she sadly died two days after Crowley's birthday on October 14th, 1920. Mm. Bearing in mind they'd been there since April. Sad. It's really sad. Leah was pregnant again with Crowley's baby. She returned to the Abbey and then miscarried six <gasps> days later. She was really sick, Michelle. Yeah. And they were doing lots of rituals and sex magics and whatnot, trying to figure out what was going on. They decided it was Nanette's doing. Oh. Who was at this stage eight months pregnant with Crowley's baby. They felt that she had done some magic of her own because she was so obsessed with Crowley and she was the one causing all the misery amongst the thruple. This is not going in a good direction here. It was decreed that Nanette was to be cast out of the Abbey, which is probably for the best, to be honest, at eight months pregnant. For the rest of her pregnancy, she had to stay out, but not before being exercised in the Thelema way, which was just told things like, keep your diary going carefully, go and live in Chefalu alone, Go to the hospital alone. The day before you come out, send up your diary and I will reconsider things. I shall hope to see the ulcers healing. I don't know what ulcers he's talking about. Do not answer this. Simply do as I say. Love is the law. Love under will. And that was Crowley to Ninette. So she went off and lived, I think, with an old lady for a little while. Even though she was being accused of two deaths, she gave birth to a daughter, Astarte Lulu Panthea, a.k.a. Louise Shumway. Now, I did follow up Louise. She was born a healthy child and returned to the United States 10 years later in 1930, where she was brought up by her mother's older sister, Helen Frau. Despite her bizarre childhood, Louise lived a conventional life. She graduated from the University of California. She became a school teacher. She married. She had children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren and for 50 years was a member of her local Presbyterian church. Right, so there was nothing witchy going on. No, it wasn't inherited. Alistair Mm. and Leah at that point, or at some point later, I think they're only there three years, they left the Abbey of Thelema and relocated to Northern Africa. And without Alistair there, the Abbey was abandoned and to this day is still standing, but in ruins. So you can go there and visit Mm. it on the island, of on Sicily, Cefalu, whatever, just Google it. So by June 1924... They had broken it off, Leah and Crowley. He had right. a new scarlet woman by the name of Dorothy Olsen. Despite being downgraded, Leah continued her devotion to Thelema, working for Crowley as a helper for the religion for three years. Ultimately, she returned to her work as a school teacher in America. And there were rumours that she had converted to Roman Catholicism in later life. She died eventually in 1975 in Meeringen in Switzerland, aged 91 nice old life to be honest i think not being crowley's scarlet woman is probably for the best yeah (laughs) so i'm going to go back quickly before i finish up to the trial that i alluded to there's a different trial sorry there was a trial which crowley attended and was reported in the manchester guardian on the 13th of april 1934 with this incredible headline mr alistair crowley the author declines to make himself invisible in court snappy (laughs) (laughs) so he claimed damages against a lady called miss nina hamnet who's the author of a book entitled laughing torso 
Nina Hamnett was a legendary artist and bohemian who wrote this book as a memoir and it became a bestseller in the UK and America. Crowley unsuccessfully sued her and the publisher for libel over allegations of black magic made in her book. So I think she was a member of either the Order or of the Thelema or at the Abbey or something. And she had written okay. about it in her book. He didn't like it because she was saying that he practiced black magic. So, yes, she was there. She was at the Abbey in Sicily and he didn't like the fact that he said he practiced black magic. He also denied that a baby mysteriously disappeared. She was probably alluding to Poupe's death and that a black mm. cat was killed and people drank the blood and got sick. That was the rumour surrounding that young man who died from drinking the bad water in the fountain. Oh, okay. So it's a bit Chinese whispers what she's put in her book. Yeah. Okay. Hamlet won the case, but it negatively impacted her life. She then went on years later to become an alcoholic and a bit of a sad figure propped up at the bar in Fitzrovia in London, where all the bohemians mm. used to frequent in their heyday. She would trade anecdotes for drinks and her Wikipedia page says... Hamnet died in 1956 from complications after falling out of her apartment window and being impaled on the oh. fence 40 feet below. Oh. The great debate oh. has always been whether it was a suicide attempt or merely a drunken accident. Her last words were, why don't they let me die? Yeah, suicide. Come Eerie. on. But just finally, a little bit more about Crowley. During a cross-examination during this trial with, uh, what's her name? Nina Hamnett, uh, he was asked to try his magic out in court, which is why he had the silly headline. The defence barrister said, you said yesterday that as the result of early experiments, you invoked certain forces with the result that some people were attacked by unseen assailants. Try your magic now on my learned friend, pointing to the King's counsel. I'm sure he will not object. To which Crowley replied, <laughs> I would not attack anyone. I have never done willful harm to any human being and that is perfect response uh, exactly he could say it as much as he wanted whether people believed him or not it was up to them i suppose and if you're against yeah. him you're not going to believe him are you so i think in terms of him saying you know do no harm and it's all free will yeah. i don't think he's a you know master of the dark arts or anything he's just I a think bit of a free thinker he's a free thinker who just loved to have sex with loads of women and do yeah. a little bit of ritual and masks. Ritual, and, yeah. You know, dress he up. He loved the I Ching. Mm. He used that quite often to make decisions. Mm -hmm. He had his ways of making decisions or, you know, living his life and they were different. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is brilliant because, I don't know, I sort of not dismiss Crowley, but I just feel like there's so much about him. There's so much misinformation. Mm. I never really thought about the ladies in his life. So that was really great. Thank you so much. It's been a bit of a look at the females, witchy females episode. Yeah. I will say that there's been a lot of misinformation possibly. I mean, I don't know because you can't prove anything or disprove no. anything. But, you know, the sex magic rituals, a lot of debauchery going on. Children were privy to it to seeing it mm. not that they were involved and I don't believe that he ever killed any children he may have killed animals but there are some forums that I came across where they were like horrified at various things that they'd read or misconstrued yeah and then there was other people sort of saying no I think you've misread that uh, Crowley was not known to ever hurt other people and as he just said I would never willingly harm anybody yeah just said he didn't just say it I just said you it. just said it he said it years ago you were channeling Crowley I would never. 
I would hate that. I'd probably feel very unwell afterwards. Uh, well, you'd be involved in all sorts of sex magic. Imagine. No. Imagine that. Pain and terror. You just don't want to get that mixed up with other magic, do you? No. I think I'll be very careful if I do practice any magic. I know. You don't want to be kind of invoking a, a little spirit. Demon with a massive penis. Yeah. Asking for, you know, please bring success and wealth. And instead, you just get sexy times because you've accidentally yeah. invoked the, the sex magic. <laughs> yeah. Not a good thing. But no, absolutely great. Thanks for revisiting Alistair. He's a fascinating character. He is. And thank you for bringing Rosaline to my attention. Really interesting. I'd like to seek out the documentary. I'll link that shit up in the show notes. Speaking of documentaries, I'm partway through a really good one at the moment, Michelle. I don't know where I found it. Probably Sky Arts. So I don't know where you'll find it. And if you're interested, but I'm a massive fan of the band X-Ray Specs. Okay. You know, they were kind of like a punk band from the 70s. Lead singer, polystyrene, mm. amazing voice. I used to do a cover of Germ-Free Adolescence in my busking set when I first moved to London. I love her. She passed away the year after I think I moved or the year before I moved to Hastings another Hastings local Mm -hmm. she was born in Brixton and lived her last years with her daughter I think who made this film in Hastings and I was really sad when I found that out because it would have been nice to maybe bump into her sometime or find out more about her I've always found her super duper I love her anyway I'm watching this documentary that her daughter Celeste Bell has made and it's called I am a cliche I am a cliche. I yeah. would love to watch that because it's a little bit dry on the old Telerex right now. So yeah, I love a music documentary. I love anybody who has creativity in their life and seeing how their life weaves around success, yes. non-success. But really beautifully put together. There's some fantastic film footage. Her daughter, Celeste Bell, has had access to a ton of stuff. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how far it's going into her life post x-ray specs and also celeste bell is a guest on budgie and lol's podcast curious creatures i haven't listened to it yet because i've been waiting to watch the film first which has been on my list for a really long time oh that's great i'm gonna watch that i'm gonna link it up again link the shit out of that that. link it shelly link it well thanks again for all your great info on crowley and i really think there's only three things three things left to say What are they? Wherever you are. And whatever you do. Just Just keep keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.